Welcome to episode 97, College During Coronavirus, Navigating Decisions and Challenges, featuring Dr. Mark Stevens, licensed clinical psychologist. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any upcoming episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. Today I'm excited and honored to spend some time with Dr. Mark Stevens talking about the transition period with uh, young adults either going to college for the first time or starting college, I should say, or returning to college in the age of COVID-19. Dr. Stevens is a licensed clinical psychologist in California, and he's also a tenured professor at California State University, Northridge. Uh, He has a lot of experience in university counseling programs and has also headed up departments based in optimizing the learning for college students and really is kind of the perfect person to talk to about this particular topic. Thank you, Mark, for joining us. Thank you, Beth. I appreciate you reaching out. And this is a really important topic that I'm sure is on a lot of people's minds these days. Absolutely. So why don't you take a moment and tell us a little bit more about you and how you came to have this specialization and working with emerging adults and the transition to college? Yeah, sure. Well, I I started working with college students back in the early 80s, and my career has been working with college students. I was uh, working university college counseling services, uh, directed a, a training program at the University of Southern California, and then for 10 years, I was the director of university counseling services at um, California State University Northridge. In the last five years, I've been uh, uh, teaching full-time in the marriage and family therapy program at Cal State University Northridge. I've always been interested in sort of the the social emotional learning of college students and how that sort of impacts their performance, their self-image, their confidence. And at Northridge, I developed a program called Excel, Experiencing Confidence and Enjoyment of Learning. As we move down this road, the, the new ways that students are learning, the ways that professors are needing to teach are really impacting uh, how students feel about going to college or being in college in terms of what the learning environment is going to be. And for many of the students and parents, there's a lot of gigantic question marks that they have about what it's going to look like. How are my students going to do? Um, and that's just the academic side. And so then you have this whole other side of physical safety and psychological safety that um, both um, the adult students, the adult children, and the parents are facing. Um, So I've been thinking a lot about these issues um, for a long time and then narrowing it down uh, in terms of the COVID-19 era. Um, I've had the opportunity to to speak with with friends who are parents of college students and, and speak with some college students and just get into some conversations with my colleagues about what are we anticipating going on and how are we best going to be able to meet the variety of needs um, that our college students and their parents have um, moving into the fall semester. Absolutely. Um, Thank you again for joining us, Mark. Um, I see uh, quite a few young adults in my private practice and see, of course, is in air quotes because those are virtual sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've seen real time the difficulty that my emerging adult clients have had in the transition to online learning and also the challenges in decision making because it feels like you're choosing from an array of bad choices. Nothing is really ideal. And trying to support them therapeutically through those decisions, um, even, you know, it's it's challenging for me as a therapist and, Mm -hmm. and knowing how to support them. Update as of January 2021. When Dr. Mark Stevens and I first did this interview, it was back in July of 2020, when information about the pandemic and its impact on college students and young adults in general was very much emerging. And as such, I want to take a moment to give you some new information about the studies now that we have some time to see how COVID-19 has impacted young adults, and also want to set the frame here about how things were even prior to the pandemic relating to college students with mental health considerations. Prior to the pandemic, 20% of college students met the diagnostic criteria for a mental health disorder as described in the DSM-5. 
So that's one in five, which is already quite a high number. Regarding the topic of ADHD and learning online, um, I bring that up because many colleges and university programs are either now exclusively or partially online for the time being. College students with ADHD in general experience less academic success and have greater psychological and emotional difficulties than other students. And also college students with ADHD use alcohol and drugs at higher rates. So for individuals who had existing ADHD prior to the pandemic, imagine how their online learning experience has been shifted because of these new and specific challenges as a result of being online and the different learning environment. And then regarding social media, though social media use and having an online presence has its positive uh, effects and also drawbacks, lonely and depressed individuals may develop a preference for online social interaction, which according to studies may lead to negative outcomes associated with their internet use. So one of the concerns here is that people who were already lonely and depressed and were relying on the internet for social interaction, now that's been limited even more, and all of us have been shifting away from um, in-person social interaction and now relying more heavily online, which as we know from other studies, has some significant concerns. Students with pre-existing mental health concerns may be at greater risk for heightened psychological distress stemming from COVID-19 relative to students without those pre-existing mental health concerns. A Centers for Disease Control and Prevention study of more than 5,400 American young adults ages 18 and older revealed that uh, more than 60% reported feeling an increase in anxiety and depression. These results, which are three times as high in the same time in 2019, so three times higher than in 2019, also included a reported increase in suicidal thoughts and substance use. A quarter of young adults reported starting or increasing their use of alcohol, marijuana, and prescription drugs as a way to cope. In this CDC study, more than 70% of those responding young adults reported at least one adverse behavioral health reaction to the pandemic. So that could include anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder. Almost 11% had experienced suicidal thoughts in the previous month, a group that was disproportionately male and people of color. Data released in a COVID-19 report by the app Sleep Cycle uh, underscored the impact of the pandemic on young adults, which found that they were experiencing an increase in loneliness and excessive technology consumption, and that their sleep had been impacted more than any other age group. So the reason I wanted to present this data to you, um, we can see not only was the college population at risk in terms of mental health uh, diagnoses or conditions prior to the pandemic, they're now particularly at risk. And so as part of this conversation with Dr. Stevens about decision-making regarding college and how to talk about um, different challenges that are going to be encountered when um, operating in a pandemic world as as we navigate it right now in 2021, I wanted to bring this up. So again, before about 20% of college students had um, symptoms to meet criteria for a mental health disorder. And while I can't find a study right now that tells us where that is right now, we do know that more than 60% of college students interviewed reported an increase in anxiety and depression now, and that that is three times higher than when it was asked in 2019. So we do know that the pandemic is obviously having a negative impact on the mental health of young adults. Um, I will let you resume to the original program, but just wanted to give you a little bit of an update and some additional information. Thank you so much for listening. So why don't we get started with you kind of with your ear to the rails and what you're seeing um, and what you're hearing these conversations, both at the university level and in your private practice and among colleagues? Sure. So as you may know, there are certain colleges and universities have already declared we're going to be online. Um, Where I work at Cal State Northridge, that was decided many months ago. Uh, There are some colleges that have already said we are going to do some kind of uh, in-person learning. Those typically are some smaller private universities that have made some decisions to do that. And then there's a bunch of colleges that are out there that haven't declared what they're gonna do. For example, in California, the UC systems have not declared what they're gonna do. The Cal States have declared what they're going to do. So folks are sort of waiting. And um, what I've talked, to with with parents is they're kind of uncertain because they're going, well, um, 
do I send my son or daughter uh, uh, away to college at this point? How are the dorms going to be? Are they going to be safe? What's the safety measures that are going to happen? Also, parents are struggling um, with, do I enroll my student? They've been accepted here, but they were sort of looking forward to going away to college. Now they may not be going away to college. <clears throat> if they're, the college of choice is going to be online, is it best that I spend the money to be able to do that? Is that the kind of college experience that my student, my, my son or daughter wants? Uh, and, the, and the son and daughter is also, the college student is also struggling with that decision as well. So I think there's a lot of uncertainty right now and people are, are waiting uh, in terms of the decision about whether they're going to go or not go um, to college, depending on where the COVID-19 goes. And as you know, just recently, there's even more uncertainty. And we've also seen a, a, a spike in terms of uh, uh, folks between the ages of 20 and 40 becoming more and more infected as well. So this is a very dynamic uh, process. And uh, and I think it's, I, I, I feel really, um, well, for lack of a better word, I, I, I just feel bad for, for some of the, the students and their parents because developmentally, Beth, when you think about it, some of these students have been dreaming about what their college experience is going to be like for a very long period of time. And parents have been dreaming about what it's going to be like for their students and feeling the pride of their students going away to college or having a certain kind of experience in college. And all that has been sort of put on pause. Um, it's going to happen. They're just uncertain how it's going to happen, what it's going to look like, and what their parameters are for making decisions about whether to send their son or daughter away to college or which college um, to, to go to. So it's, it's a, um, I, in many ways, there's not this kind of celebration that <clears throat> normally families would be having as they're ready to launch their son or daughter off to college. For those that are already in college, they're realizing it's going to be a different kind of experience. And they were anticipating certain kind of experiences in their sophomore, junior, or senior year, whether it was about internships that maybe they're not going to be able to do, or certain kind of learning experiences that they were going to, to have. Uh, so again, there's this um, kind of grieving process that's going on for many of the, the students and many of the parents uh, as well. I'm glad you brought up the idea of grief. Um, we have a dear family friend who is supposed to be going to a small private college on, on the East Coast um, in the next month. And the struggle that she's had, so she would be starting her freshman year. And just the mourning process that she's gone through, she didn't get prom, she didn't get a graduation, all of these things. And she's even said, you know, I, I, looked, to, I looked forward to all these things for my whole life. I was told how great my senior year was going to be, how special my freshman year of college and my college experience would be. And she said, now everything is just stopped. And I, I also as a parent, well, my child is, you know, my, my school age child is starting kindergarten, even for me making decisions as a parent of like, how do I weigh my child's physical safety with his emotional and mental needs of needing to see peers been isolated for so many months? Um, you know, if we, if we look at the studies, even the last month or two, that the increase in depression and anxiety among adolescents children, adolescents, and young adults is just through the roof um, because they've been affected in such a unique way. And we as mental health professionals are challenged with supporting them as effectively as we can in this changing environment. Like you said, a lot of things are still wait and see, and that's nerve wracking. Um, Absolutely. So, so when we're looking at the standard college experience, what are the normal developmental um, checkboxes that are generally hit uh, as part of launching and, and living independently and, and having that dorm experience or living in a nearby community? So, you know, your example of, of sending your kindergarten off to, to school, while there may be a little bit of a collaborative kind of decision-making how you're going to do that. For the most part, it's going to be between the parents that are going to make the decision 
you know, that, that you, while you want to hear the opinions and the feelings of your five or six year old, ultimately at that age, parents have a little bit more say in terms of what their children are doing. Your question then raises the, um, around developmental concerns. By the time that, that your student, by the time that the student is a senior, and ideally parents are giving their, their children a little bit more leeway in terms of, of making decisions and allowing them to make some, some mistakes uh, that they're going to make and seeing that as a kind of part of the developmental process. What ends up happening, I think, Beth, in terms of this kind of separation, individuation phase <clears throat> with, with parents and their emerging adults is that as there's more perceived danger out there, the adult usually ends up taking a little bit more control. And the adult may be a little bit more authoritative in saying, no, you're not going to do that because their own anxiety is starting to, to kick in. And so I ask parents to really be mindful and aware of their own anxiety and how that's getting projected onto their emerging adult. And <clears throat> would you be making a different kind of decision, a different kind of collaborative decision if this COVID-19 was not going on? Now, I'm not telling parents, you know, just treat this as if it's any other college experience, but be aware of ways that you might be sort of infantilizing your emerging adult during this time. This is particularly even more true for college students who are going back to college and they've already been on their own. They've already, you know, uh, been able to, to master their first or second year in college. They've developed their own sort of wings and their own muscles to make decisions and how to navigate life and, and, um, so they're, they're going to come into this decision with flexing their muscles a little bit. It's like, hey, mom, hey, dad, you know, I, I, you're treating me like I'm back in junior high. So we want the parents to be aware of what's going on inside of, of them. So maybe they're going to be able to have a different kind of collaborative discussion um, that is different than when their child was younger. You bring up a really good point that obviously I'm I'm making decisions for my kindergartner. And while he absolutely has an opinion and we take that into consideration, he can't make this decision for himself. And fast forward for these uh, parents that are assisting their emerging adult in making these decisions, I think you bring up a good point of needing to work with the parents around the anxiety of, of wanting to step in and say, here's the deal. Um, and take the reins at a very important life stage where we should be supporting the independence of a young adult, but the stakes are really, really high. The stakes are really high, and we know developmentally um, from our own lives and what we've read um, professionally for many years is that there's a type of invinci invincibility that many emerging adults have. I will say that that's even more of a case for guys Maybe you've been reading some of the articles that are coming out and some of the research that's come out about guys are, are less likely to wear masks because they feel like it's a sign of, of weakness. So going back to this, I, I'm invincible. At when you're 18, 19, 20 years old, you've got this sense of danger really isn't out there. I'm young, I'm healthy. While they're concerned about their parents or their grandparents, um, in terms of them getting the disease, a lot of the students are saying, I'm not that concerned about it. if I get it, I think I'm going to be okay as long as I don't pass it on. So you've got that one um, aspect of their own development, along with a very strong desire to be socially connected with their friends. And what I mean by socially connected, there is some satisfaction that this this these groups of of emerging adults have through social media, more so than folks that are older than them. Um, but there's still a really strong desire to have parties, to be close to one another, to have rituals, to have gatherings, to be able to um, just, just be able to have fun in the presence of another. 
And so I think what we're seeing is that when when folks in their 20s are getting together, they're oftentimes not thinking about social distancing. And then you add in alcohol use, um, where you're, if there's drinking involved, then the, the uh, students are less likely to make some of the good decisions or better decisions that they would want, that there's a little bit more sense of invisi- inv- invincibility. Um, and uh, there may be more risk-taking that uh, goes on. It sounds like a perfect storm of anxiety for a parent, knowing that just the process of launching a child in normal circumstances is very anxiety-inducing. You know, will they make safe decisions at that party? How much will they drink? And now you have this whole layer of how much will they socially distance? Will they wear a mask? How, you know, will they be physically intimate with somebody? Um, and adding that to the list of worries. I'm sure so many parents are just tossing and turning. (laughs) Absolutely. And then you have, I would believe that, you know, there's always stories and I've, I've heard them many, many times of what has been called uh, helicopter parents. I think most people are familiar with that in terms of being able to sort of monitor how their kids are doing, what their kids are doing. And that monitoring goes on a scale of of one to ten from check you know being able to check where they are on their on their phones to calling two three times a day to figuring asking them how their grades are doing turning in their grades to their parents etc you know on on one extreme and i i believe that for many helicopter parents this is going to be really really difficult because that's already kind of in their system. And so the helicoptering may even be increased. So if they're hovering at sort of a hundred feet above, we may see some of the helicopter parents going down to like 25, 25 feet above their, their um, emerging adult student. And for those that um, were practicing uh, non-helicoptering parents, really giving their, their students uh, freedom you might see that shifting again, as I said before, because of some of the anxiety that the parents um, are are expressing. When it comes to supporting parents and families during this time, yeah, how do you start those conversations? How do you work with the families? The other. Um, kind of complicated issue that is, I mean, I've seen it all over social media. We have clients that have different belief systems sometimes than we do, and yeah. their risk tolerance may be higher than ours. And so we may say, oh my goodness, what are they doing on the inside of like, yeah. where are you going to live? Who are you going to be seeing? Um, yes. how, how do you recommend clinicians engage parents and families in these conversations proactively and also manage their own countertransference because they may not agree fundamentally with the decision that the young adult or the family is making in this case? Well, I always try to lead with empathy for clinicians in terms of understanding that um, people are going to be coming in to the decisions that they make through a, a particular type of, of value system that has meaning to them, that's, that's been um, organically developed uh, for a long period of time, and to be careful of our own countertransference issues and judgments that we may that we may make. So on some level, we have to do what we always do is to, to sort of bracket some of our judgments and some of our assumptions and be there for our clients to, to hear them out first uh, and to be as empathic as, as possible. And then uh, I think it's important to help um, our, our clients, our parents, or our students that we're seeing to be able to unpack where this, where their decisions have been made, and to be able to assess, is there some cognitive flexibility that they have? And to be able to talk with your clients about sort of the importance of cognitive flexibility at this time in your life. And particularly, it's, it's, it's really, I, I think it's really critical to be able to have as much um, cognitive flexibility as possible. You know, in terms of coaching parents, uh, the parents, the more anxiety that they have, the more likely the conversation is going to look like a lecture to their, uh, to their emerging adult. And we know that um, folks be, uh, 18 to 25 do not want to be lectured by their parents. And so 
um, they're trying to exercise their independence muscle. They're trying to exercise their their brains in terms of being able to sort out what the world looks like and to be proud of the awarenesses that they're making about how the world is. Um, I also think that we're finding that um, younger adults are um, perhaps more liberal than their parents. They're thinking about um, these issues very um, differently, and they want to have a collaborative uh, a collaborative relationship, and which means a collaborative conversation with their parents. So I would be inclined to be coaching the parents to be able to what is that collaborative conversation going to look like? How are you going to be able to carve out the space and time to really get to know where your your um, emerging adult child is coming from and to be able to say, how are we together going to make this kind of decision? Now, parents may have a bottom line and say, this is my bottom line. Um, We're not going to cross this. But I would suggest that clinicians have a really good conversation about how they made a decision about that bottom line without telling them what to do, but to be able to sort of nuance where that bottom line is and do they have some flexibility to change that bottom line or how are they going to communicate that bottom line to their, um, to their son or daughter? Um, as you're talking about it, the, I mean, again, the amount of emotion coming from both parties. And one of the things that I've also seen and heard already Many times when young adults are either starting college or resuming uh, college experience, their parents are involved financially. And so I've already been involved in the conversation of if you do this, then you're not going to get any more financial support from us. Then you need to get student loans or you need to pay for housing on your own. And that it turn it, it's it can turn into this um, drag out, kind of lock in the conversation where it feels like they can't move forward because their their differences of opinion are enormous. Yes. And so, you know, parents going to to money as, you know, trying to influence the decision by taking away money uh, is is pretty common. I don't agree with this on 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 many occasions. Some occasions it might uh, if your if your son or daughter isn't doing well at an at a private university and you're paying all this money and they don't look like they're putting the effort to to get the kind of grades that you would expect and I don't mean all A's that that parents might say hey th- this may not be for you let's go to a community college pull this up but I've also on the other hand seen parents where as soon as they aren't getting what they want or they want to be able to um, I'm going to say manipulate their child to, to agree with them, they use money because it's a, it's great leverage for them um, because they get to use their power and control in that way. Kind of a funny story how desperate parents can get. And I think a lot of times it's out of desperation that the parents have to use money. So as a clinician, I want to get in touch with their desperation because that's the feeling that I can, I can work with. But I was on a plane way back when, and the mom was getting really frustrated with their, I think it was like a five or six year old who wasn't, quote, behaving and told the the, the, <laughs> the child that if you don't sit down and stop doing X, Y, or Z, I'm going to go up to the pilot and tell her to turn around the plane. Now, you can't really, she, the mom couldn't really do that. So you have to be, for parents, if you're going to use the money as the leverage, I, I would I would make certain that that's a decision that you can follow up on and that's a decision that you're going to be able to, to deal with and, and agree upon and look at some of the consequences that, that might occur. Again, I come in with the, the, the term flexibility and seeing if there's a more flexible way, a more collaborative way where there's a win-win situation that might that might occur. Um, I appreciate you sharing that story and also that age-old parenting thing of saying the thing, like threatening the thing and going, oh no, I can't stand by it. Um, yes. And trying to 
preemptively work with parents to facilitate that conversation. So Mark, I'm curious, when you're working with an emerging adult right now, and they're, you know that they're having these conversations at home, um, yes. and you're just working with the emerging adult, do you see this, of course, depending on the situation, depending on the client, as a good time to request a family therapy session on this very topic? Yeah, I think, um, and, and I've worked with a number of, of, of students now or um, students that are going into college. And one of the things that I have found really helpful is for, the, for my client, the student, to be able to write down kind of a list of concerns that, that they have about how this is going to impact their relationship with their family. So I first start to work with the student to, to help them sort of nuance, okay, there's a money issue here. Let's talk about what the money issue is here. Um, let's talk about the living situation. Let's talk about how I'm going to socialize. Let's talk about a variety of different issues. One in, in, in particular that's going on is that for students who have already been to college, they're back at home and there's lots that's written about you know how parents can deal with their son or daughter that's coming back home and and knowing that they can't treat them the same way they did when they were in high school or junior high so that has to change but what happens when it's not just this temporary spring break or the temporary um uh winter holiday break but this is going to be maybe for a semester or a whole year where this student has already been out on their own, now they're coming back. And to be able to almost like just state the obvious. So I will talk with the student, what are some of the worries? What are some of the concerns that you have about the relationship that you're going to have with your folks during this time? And I want to work with my student for a while to be able to help them have some cognitive flexibility, help them empathize with what their parents are going through and sort of help them guide them through this conversation. Because I really want to empower my client to be able to talk with their folks about this. So I may not go right into a family session. Um, uh, what I've done is to help empower uh, my client to be able to go and have that conversation with their folks and just see how that, how that happens, what, 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 what emerges from that. And if it feels like there needs to be a sort of a second round of intervention that would involve the family, I would um, go there. The same is true when I'm consulting with parents. I'm asking them the same exact questions um, I'm putting a little bit more of a steroid into their empathy and into their education about what their emerging adult is going through. What are some of the developmental issues that, that they have? Some of the things that we were just talking about, Beth, and for them to be able to, to help them guide the conversation and empowering the parents to be able to have that, that conversation. And it feels like if somehow that gets stuck, then we can move more into a, a family um, intervention uh, mode. Thank you. That's really uh, helpful guidance. Um, I know one of the conversations I've also seen is um, the living situation. So I am <laughs> kind of ashamed I'm about to say this, but it's to me, it's become like Britney Spears, not a girl, not yet a woman, in the mm -hmm. sense that you have these young adults that have been living independently that have been managing whether yeah. or not they're going to do the dishes in the sink because they have that deal with their roommates or whatever it is. And then they come back home. They've been back home for a couple of months. And now many of them are facing the reality that they're going to be doing distance learning. And the conversation I've had with many is like, is this going to work for you? It was one thing when this was quote unquote summer break, but now this yeah. is becoming, you know, the year of 2020, 2021 academics. Can it continue? And also, is it reasonable? You know, is there financial flexibility to be looking at an alternative living arrangement that obviously doesn't include dorms, but something that could be safe? I, I think it's just opened up conversations that none of us ever thought we were going to have. Certainly not yeah. the young adults or their families. Um, so when it comes to working with emerging adults, what are some of the considerations and how do you inoculate them effectively? You know, here we are talking about the conversation of should I, shouldn't I go, go to school? Mm -hmm. What would that look like? But in practice, 
how do you support that cognitive flexibility in emerging adults in session right now? Yeah. Well, you know, the, the Chinese symbol for crisis um, is danger and opportunity. And to be able to dance with those two of danger and opportunity, um, I'm, I am looking at the side of, of opportunity. I'm not ignoring the danger part, but I'm looking at the side of, of opportunity here. And, and not in a Pollyannish sort of way of, of, oh, let's just find the silver lining here. Although that's a very nice concept that more and more people are using, um, you know, based on that, um, on that wonderful movie, um, because there is going back to that word grief, that there is some grieving that go that goes on. And I believe developmentally, and we'll get on to the to the question that you asked, but developmentally, we all have a temper tantrum inside of us, no matter how old we are, and whether that temper tantrum lasts for five seconds or a year, um, people need to have that temper tantrum. Now, if you're having a temper tantrum for a, a year that something else is going on, if you just have it for five seconds, you're probably in a little bit of denial. So there's this sweet spot of a temper tantrum of going, I don't like this. I don't want this. This doesn't feel good. This is unfair. You know, you've seen it, Beth, with your one-year-old or two-year-old or when they're younger and they're just screaming. It's, I don't want this. We still have that inside of us. So we need to like have a little bit of a temper tantrum. We need to feel a little bit sorry for ourselves. And so I encourage my students to just complain. You don't have to be right. Just complain about how this is really kind of messing up your life plan. So I want to hear that complaint. And after that sort of through your system, although it never gets actually through your system, you can have many temper tantrums all along the way, and that's, that's okay. Then I open up to say, let's look at this opportunity. Um, what are some of the lessons during this time? And why, you know, this is, this is important. For many college students, they're getting ready or they have already started to read material that is really getting them to think about who they are. So when you talk about the developmental process of emerging adults, their identity issues are gigantic. There's a lot of a gigantic window of opportunity for students of this age to really be thinking about who they are, where they're going, what their life is about. They get to think about themselves differently than how they were defined themselves before when they were in junior high or high school. So we're living in some real life existential times in terms of what does it mean to be alive right now? The fear of death, the fear of losing others. And what emerges during this time is for many folks, they get to kind of potentially mature a little bit quicker. So I see this as sort of identity issues on steroids that they're going to have to be thinking about who they are. And so there's, there's some lessons that um, we'll talk with um, my, my clients about, my emerging adults about, and things like managing expectations. Um, how are they going to connect differently and get satisfied? Um, what are ways that they're going to have to communicate um, differently now? How are they going to learn to be more cognitively flexible? Um, lessons about how to learn and absorb information differently. Lessons how to have more self-compassion, lessons how to be kind to others during these trying times. And what I've found, you know, with a lot of um, kind of awe is that many of my clients are willing to go there, to have these meaningful conversations that they're wanting to do that. They're wanting to, 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 to be able to kind of talk about that. They're not sure what the answers are, um, but they like being able to explore um, what is going on for them at this at this point? For some, it means delaying how long they're going to be um, in college, uh, and that's a, that's a big decision. Um, so when I'm again, when I'm working, is is trying to help my my clients look at the world and themselves differently because of the world being different. And there's this gigantic opportunity that 
that most 18, 19, and 20-year-olds haven't had to face for a very long period of time. I do also want to mention, Beth, that what I've been absolutely impressed with, with the, the students that I've been um, working with, is to juxtapose the COVID-19 with the discussions about um, uh, equality, uh, racism, um, and uh, some of the, the movements that are going on now, some of the awareness movements in, in terms of social justice. And so there's, a, there's lessons out there for these 18, 19, 20 plus year olds that are unprecedented. You know, in one, in the period of six months, you got the COVID-19 and you've got all that's going on around social justice and Black Lives Matter and white privilege and issues around um, equality. It, it's, it's amazing about what these silver linings are and what these learning opportunities are. And I have found almost in all of working with students or talking with students of this age is they're, they're kind of excited about this. They feel like, oh, this is my time to really kind of get involved and, and shine about this. So the perception that our 18, 19-year-olds are just selfish, they're just thinking about themselves, I think that's really, really wrong. Now, do they want the kind of pleasures that 18 and 19 and 20-year-olds want? Yes, absolutely. Do they test their parents with getting what they want? Absolutely. But they're a lot deeper thinkers than I think we're giving them credit for. Thank you. I, I appreciate you also bringing up that aspect of the college experience. You know, I, I know my college experience was not my first taste of activism, but seeing it in a different way. It was organized in a very different way to be, you know, walking across the campus and seeing these different causes and deciding what I was going to be involved in. And that that's also part of the college experience. And I've had the same experience um, in working with my young adult clients right now. You know, how do I be involved when I when I am immunocompromised and I'm stuck in my room? And, and what, what skills do I have that I can contribute if I can't contribute financially? And the commitment to activism um, that I think is 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 part of the young adult college experience. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad you bring that up. Um, one of my other questions for you, you know, I, I know so many of my high school and young adult clients have been struggling with the transition to working through screens. I mean, heck, we've all been challenged with that. None of us have, like, very, well, I shouldn't say none, very, very few of us have been like, this is fantastic. Um, you know, we've had to adapt to a new way of living. And for college students, it's, I mean, just staring at a screen all day. Um, I, I've taught at the university level, but I've not done online learning. My husband is a professor at Pepperdine right now, and he was the very last online class for his students this last term. And by the time they had spent already six or seven hours in online learning, I mean, their, oh. their eyes were just glazed over at the oh, point gosh. that they got to him. Um, how do we as clinicians support clients right now in what to expect and how to manage this just unbelievable use of screens and how hard that is? I mean, I know I've had students with ADHD that, that are having to entirely change their plan for the next three or four years. They thought they were going to be done in four years and they're realizing I can't do this. I already did this for a few months um, at the end of last term and I can't do this again. So I'm, I'm taking a gap year, which is a very different gap year than we're used to. You're not going to go back packing across Europe. Um, but so how have you been having that conversation about screens and the challenges that that brings, assuming that we're going to have the integration of distance learning for many of these emerging adults? Yeah. Well, I, I, I don't want to assume anything with any of my clients around their screen time. So I ask them the question, you know, what is it like? And I've seen a range where there's some that say, I love this. You know, this, this is just fine. I'm used to looking at my screen. I play games on the screen. I like, I like the screen. What they're finding more difficult isn't so much the screen time but or the screen fatigue, but students learn very differently uh, in different sort of uh, settings. So the, the largest complaint that I'm hearing is that the students are having a hard time um, concentrating, paying attention, not starting to multitask. I've talked with a lot of different professors and you can't force your student 
to have their um, video on. So many, because they might just say, I don't have a video on my camera and you can't say, well, go out and get another camera or go out and get another computer. So you're finding a lot of students who are not putting on their camera because they're multitasking. They're doing something else and they don't want the professor to see what else they're, they're doing. And that's the way that their brain works. Um, on a side note, not necessarily too much of a side note, uh, instructors are really, are really challenged by this. Many instructors are because teaching is a performance in many ways. And they like to walk up and down the aisles. They like to make eye contact. They like to be able to use a little bit of, of entertainment in their, in their teaching. And the reason that they do that is because we know that that catches people's attention. If you don't know what your professor is going to say next or what joke they're going to use or what kind of creative way they're going to get their message across, um, the students stay engaged with that. Professors are having a really difficult time using their same teaching techniques that they've been using for 5, 10, 20, 25 years online. And the repercussions of that is that students are feeling that and they're going, God, it's just not as interesting. It's, it's just more boring. So professors like your husband, like myself, we're getting trained how to use Zoom, how to use screen time in some creative ways to be able to engage um, our students more and more. So there's things like the flip classroom that they're doing and, and a variety of other going into breakout meetings to be able to, to have some discussions. So we're really having to look at some different ways how to, how to communicate. But even if a student says to me, you know, I don't mind looking at the screen. I play games. I'm used to it. I'm, my value or my judgment around this is I don't think it's healthy. Um, I can't tell you scientifically, but I just don't believe that it's really good for our brain to be looking at it at a screen. So I'm, I, I think in this, in this era right now where there's an opportunity to spend much more screen time than we need to, I, I'm, I'm suggesting that uh, we have to create a formula where our eyes are doing something different than looking at a screen. So I would, when, you're, when you have time off, I would avoid looking at the TV or looking at any screen. I believe that the best antidote is go out in nature and look out in nature and start to feel the fresh air or do some kind of exercise or look at flowers or look at people watching, whatever that may be, so that you can use your eyes in a different sort of way. I also think that we need to use our, our smell and our hearing in a different way. And we're not, with the screens, we're not holistic enough in terms of, of engaging our senses. So anything that can really engage our senses is a little bit of, a, of an antidote to the, to the screen time. I don't know what the formula is. I would leave that to some of the um, medical doctors to come up with a formula that if you spend so much time on your screen, you have to spend so much time exercising your brain and your eyes in a very different way so that you're feeding yourself um, uh, a more of a holistic sensory um, experience. I know I can relate with the challenges of staring at a screen all day. And I know you can as well. Yeah, um, I'm sure our listeners are nodding. And so here we have this group of young adults that is um, likely very isolated and challenged by needing to sustain attention for unknown topics. You know, that's a whole idea of learning. I've had many of my young adults lament the losses of the things that they were looking forward to. And, you know, I remember college, there were some classes that you're just checking the box, but there are some classes that, man, you were excited to go to. 
and listening to their grief of, of losing that, you know, of not being able to connect with the professor, not being able to engage the same way, and how dramatically it's not only affected their real time experience, but that they're not engaging with the content in the same way, and that there's a loss there as well. You know, that they're, they're emerging adult sponges, but the liquid is entirely different now that's filling them up. The, the idea of meeting them where they're at and acknowledging just that difficulty, because I think, you know, I've, I've heard so many young adults say, you know, but I'm on, I'm on online all the time. It's really not that big of a deal. And, and minimizing the challenge and the struggle that they're facing on a daily basis in completely adjusting to a, a different environment than what they thought they were going to face this year. Um, that we, uh, we, will glaze over that challenge and try to minimize it because it on the face of it, it doesn't seem that big, but every single day, it's a huge loss to not, I mean, I remember the experience of walking into a huge hall uh, at university and, you know, finding a seat, seeing if I could find a friend and, you know, getting out my water bottle and my computer and this whole college experience that they're not going to have this year. That's just part of the deal. Um, and that there's so much grief associated with that. Absolutely. And, you know, we're asking both the parents and the students to um, swim in different temperature water. So they're, they know how to swim. Okay. So things kind of look the same. Oh, teaching is teaching. Learning is learning. I'm a swimmer. I can swim. You, but you swim very differently in 70 degree water than you do in 50 degree water. And it just takes some time to sort of get used to swimming in a different temperature water. Your body has to adjust to that. And I believe that we don't really know. It's been too short of a period of time about um, whether students are going to, if this goes on for a while and there's going to be online learning, uh, that they're going to uh, habituate to a different way of, of learning. And so the, the, the 50 degree water will feel like it's, oh, yeah, I know what 50 degree water feels like. I remember personally my first Zoom meeting. I'm like awkward, you know, my face is like up next to the up next to the camera and you know, I'm wondering if it's working. I don't know if my mic's on, my mic's off. I'm yelling, "Can you hear me?" And you know, that's the first one. Now you walk into a Zoom meeting, it's like, "Hey, how are you?" Da -da. Yeah, I got screen shot on there and I've got this and that. So you start to get used to it. Um you can start to get used to it over time. But one of your points that you were making, um, Beth, I think is a good one, is, and, and I failed to talk about this, is, is, is two things. One, I like to ask my students, what's their motivation feel like? How has that changed, their academic motivation? How has it changed for them? What's their phenomenology around uh, academic motivation? And I don't want to assume, although what I've heard from a lot of students is that they just, the students said, because I had this opportunity, I was teaching graduate students and we had to go online about three quarters of the way into the semester, similar to, to your husband. And, and then they were talking about the subject matter is exactly the same. I just don't feel as motivated and they can't figure out where that reduced motivation is coming from. And I think it's a little bit as from a clinical standpoint, is that you've got sort of this free floating anxiety that's, that's going on, the unknowns, and that's just zapping people's energy. Um, and so that's where I think you find some of the, the lack of motivation. The other thing that I found, and you know, that most people have kind of an approach avoidance to certain task and learning. Um, as you were just saying, there's certain classes where it's approach, 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 and maybe a little bit of avoidance. There's other classes where there's avoid, 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 procrastination, procrastination, but you finally get to it. I think that what's going on now around the, the different with, with the COVID-19 and the anxiety and the different kind of learning and tasks that um, our college students, or for that matter, any student, is that if they have more of a, a tendency to avoid learning, that there's a little bit more anxiety, they don't feel as much confidence about that, that they're going to kick in with a little bit more avoidance. And then they're going to be able to say, and I've heard this from students, 
I'm just feeling so down about this, or I'm so depressed about this. And then instructors are then faced with, you know, what are the consequences for that? How much leeway do I give a student? So I have found personally that students that have struggled are struggling even more now. Yeah, I, I've had exactly the same experience. And one of the other conversations that I'm realizing that I needed need and needed to be more proactive about, I had college students that were doing in-person learning before all of this happened, and they were doing well. And then there was this transition to online learning, and they had not pursued previously, they didn't need to pursue accommodations relating to a mood disorder or a learning disorder. And now my encouragement for those clients is like, let's get the letter. Let's get the letter from your psychiatrist. Let me know if you need a letter from me and let's get you involved in, in these programs your school is providing for you. Because I've seen these people that were just, oh my goodness, doing so well and so excited and you know, their eyes are lighting up about microeconomics. Who knew? Um, and then that light has just completely gone out and they're struggling so much. And and absolutely, professors are challenged with like, how much leeway do I give them? Because people are are sitting potentially in a little studio apartment by themselves, no pets, no interaction with people. They're immunocompromised. Like it just, we are up against a backdrop of a pandemic. It cannot get much worse than it is. And I think for students also, it's working with them to understand like this is a tool that's available to you to seek tutoring opportunities, to seek different academic counseling opportunities, to seek mental health counseling and be more engaged in that process because the terms of engagement are different. Um, that's That's been something that's hit me a few times with with individuals and with clients alike of okay you know the terms are different so we need to change our approach let's let's engage these different departments now so that you have additional support instead of it happening as it did the last term where it was a reactive process of oh my goodness you're rolling into you know you started with a b average and now you have a d average what are we going to do what conversations can we practice to talk with the dean or whoever it is to ask for an extension for that paper and and for me clinically to need to be more proactive in in those conversations well i think to to sort of anticipate the learning needs of our students is 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 critical and there's a lot of unknowns because the students themselves aren't sure like what are my how am I going to do this differently? What am I looking forward to about this? What am I not looking forward to this? How is this going to be a boost to my motivation? How is this going to be a drain to my motivation? How am I going to anticipate dealing with some of the, 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 the speed bumps that I might need to face during this time that I didn't need to face? I think issues around uh, help-seeking behaviors. How are they going to... Some, some students need that face-to-face -face contact for help-seeking behaviors or that, that in-person kind of help-seeking behaviors. Um, and so I think as a professor, what I'm anticipating um, is, is trying to figure out where are my students at at this point in terms of how they're uh, approaching this, this new learning environment or this different learning environment. And I want to engage them in a conversation. That's what our, I'm already thinking. Um, I think it would be a good conversation for clinicians to have with their, um, with their college students or entering college students is what are, they, what are they anticipating? What are they anticipating as the challenges? And to get a little bit ahead of the game and to be, and to be patient because some of the students are just going to struggle, go, I really don't, I don't know. There's, there's, it's hard to be able to put some words to like, I'm kind of anxious about it, but I don't really know what I'm anxious about. I think for us as clinicians needing to be really reflective and as you said earlier, to lead with empathy and reflecting how many challenges they're facing, both just this decision-making process, like where we started in this conversation, where we are now and what the, the active learning is going to look like. Just the, the landscape is profoundly different than any of us are used to that are in, in the university system or working with young adults. Um, 
Mark, you and I, I'm sure could keep talking on this topic. Um, Before we close out, are there any other thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners and just considerations um, or resources that you recommend that have helped you in supporting college students? Um, I know many of us work specifically with young adults and are being challenged with this daily in working with our clients. For me as a clinician, it always starts with me. And in terms of being able to sort of figure out what my thoughts, what my feelings are around this this time, and to be able to see how the different adjustments that I'm I'm making and and the the importance of the therapist and the self, um, and then uh, I think we're at a learning phase. I'm I'm learning so much from the students that I'm working with or the conversations that I'm having with other parents while I'm bike riding and I'm asking them, what are they thinking about? And so I think it's time to really collect information. There isn't a article that I can say, read this. This is the definitive article on this. I think it's about having conversations, listening, collecting data um, as a clinician, not having cognitive flexibility to realize that you hear one story from one family and there's another family and they're doing it very differently and just trying to understand how uh, families are digesting this and the different kinds of um, decisions uh, that, they're, that, they're, that they're making. I appreciate that insight to, to look within ourselves and, and be reflective and, and flexible ourselves for the learning that's taking place. Because you're right, there's, there's not a guide for this. I don't know of an idiot's guide that I can refer. It's like how to, how to effectively make decisions during a pandemic. And believe me, I have looked up the articles, Uh um, you know, the, the conversations that I've had in my family about you know, my child in school and he has mental and emotional needs as well as physical needs and needing to consider that. So it's like trying to cling to something and be like, someone, please tell me what to do. There are too many options and none of them are particularly good. Um, It's no man's land. That's a great point in terms of, you know, we're, we want answers as, as human beings, we want answers that give us sort of direction and, and okay, this is what I want to do. This is what I need to do. And, but those answers are changing. You, you look at even what's going on right now. Oh, you can go out and go to restaurants. No, you can't go out and go to restaurants. You can be this far away social distancing. No, you can't be this. And we're getting more information, new information. So the rules are sort of changing. And I see that that's, that's why this conversation is so dynamic because tomorrow something can come down and you and I would have a completely different conversation about this and understanding that the psyche of our clients, parents and, and our, our students, they're not sure what to hang on to either because they're anticipating, oh, the college is open next month. No, the college is closed. Oh, we're sending students back. You can, we can't live all together like that. So we don't know what to hang our hat on at this point. And so what the only thing that we can come back to is this term again of cognitive flexibility and saying, yeah, I'm going to hope for this to happen. I'm going to try to emerge myself and this is happening, but realizing that that could shift very, very quickly. And then I have to use my cognitive flexible flexibility skills to say, okay, how am I going to adjust now? Absolutely. I'm glad that you closed in making that point because it is it is ever changing and, and you think you have figured out something and then the factors all change again. I've, I've, I've been there countless yes. times, even yes. in the last week. Um, we, we, thank we, you. We want certainty, don't we? We would love to have certainty. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Um, all of us. And, and you're right. It's a fundamental human need. And so to not have the information, nothing that we can really hang our hats on or we can, but then it's going to change tomorrow. You know, it may change is really kind of crazy making. Um, Dr. Stevens, it's always wonderful to spend time with you. Um, please tell our listeners where they can get in touch with you if they'd like to follow up and learn more about your work. Sure. Um, the work that I was talking about in terms of academic confidence, a program that I coordinate called Excel, Experiencing uh, Confidence and Enjoyment of Learning. Can If you Google in my name, Mark Stevens, Excel, C-S-U-N, um, you'll find our website and information about the work that 
um, we're doing. We uh, we're doing obviously at CSUN, but I've gone to high schools and have done this work and other universities and how to set up programs um, uh, like this. I don't think I'm going to be traveling much in the upcoming six months, but uh, maybe uh, some uh, uh, Zoom time. Uh, I have a private practice um, uh, out in Westlake Village, although my private practice is now out of my home uh, doing my, my Zoom and, and working with, uh, I run a men's group uh, for the last decade and I work a lot with college students and parents and couples. Um, I think the best way to reach me would be my email at mark.stevens S-T-E-V-E-N-S at C-S-U-N dot E-D-U. Wonderful. Thank you again, Dr. Stevens. We really appreciate you taking this time to share this information with us. Thanks, Beth, for doing this. Appreciate all that you're doing. My pleasure. Okay. Take care. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.